1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15. And I'd like to say it is really good to be with you uh, on this day. And for many of you, it's Easter, and you celebrate the resurrection, and that's why you're here. I understand that, you know, some of you folks are here because it's uh, an opportunity to make some memories with your family. And of course, there's some folks that have come here today because it's kind of part of the meal deal, right? Like, you want to have a meal, you don't want to make too many waves with family, and so you just kind of have to show up and make an appearance at church. I know what that's like, and I want to tell you, we're really glad to have you with us this morning. Some of you have been invited, and you're like, well, okay, I'm just going to honor this person, honor the request, and I'm going to come. And then, of course, there's some people that you're facing the fact that life is hard. Things are maybe broken in your own life. And you thought, you know, maybe I could find some hope if I came to Easter service. And it's great that we're all here together, but um, what if Jesus didn't really rise from the grave? What if no one rises from the grave? When you're dead, you're dead. I mean, so you got a nice dress or a snazzy tie, right? Or you're going to get a decent meal, heard some great music, uh, you're probably going to eat more candy than's probably good for you, but Easter is going to come to just about that. So let's just kind of cut through all the fanfare. Did Jesus really rise from the grave? You know, everything is riding on the resurrection, because the central claim of Christianity is that Jesus, eternal Son of God, enters into humanity, lives a perfect life, dies specific in a specific way, pays the penalty for the sins of humanity, and rises on the third day. If Jesus isn't resurrected from the grave, let's be honest. What's taking place right now is borderline insanity. You know that? I mean, we're all pretending that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, for the people 2,000 years ago, uh, there was the philosophy, as there is today, when you're dead, you're dead. And the Greeks uh, had a position that the immaterial was good, and the material, like your body, is bad. And the whole idea of a resurrection or a resurrected body, well, that is repugnant. They're like, ugh, wouldn't want anything to do with that. You know, if God does not raise the dead, there are some disastrous consequences for that. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote these down in 1 Corinthians 15, and just so you and I are on the same page, take a look at what he wrote. He says, verse 12, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And let me just point out to you, verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, that our preaching is in vain. It is senseless to proclaim peace and forgiveness and joy in Jesus. Those are useless promises. They should not be proclaimed. Furthermore, notice what he also says in verse 14. And your faith also is in vain. A Christian's faith, apart from the resurrection of Christ, is worthless. Did you know that? Absolutely useless. You've based your life on a lie. Let me point out something else. Look at verse 15. Moreover, 
We are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised from raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Furthermore, ever, every single supposed witness of the resurrection is actually a liar if Christ hasn't been raised. And he goes on to say, verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. You think you're forgiven. You're living life independent of God, all the violations of his word. You think that Jesus can provide forgiveness, but you're wrong. Christ isn't raised from the grave. You, you're still in your sins. All you have to look forward to is judgment and hell, because you know what? Jesus really didn't satisfy God's just wrath against sin. He's not raised from the grave. Or notice what he says in verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And when he talks about falling asleep, it's a euphemism for death. And he's, what he's saying is like, we all think that, well, if you believe in Jesus and you die, you're going to be in his presence and you're going to gather. There's going to be this awesome reunion with all those who have trusted in Christ. That's not true. But there's no resurrection. We like to say these things at a funeral, but guess what? It's not true. It's a lie. In fact, maybe to sum it all up, look at verse 19. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. What he's basically saying is that if you're a Christian and Christ hasn't really been resurrected, you're pathetic. You should be pitied. People should feel sorry for you because you kind of think that Jesus is this risen Messiah when indeed he is not. He's not resurrected from the grave. And no, really, to be a, a Christian, especially in first century and second and third century, but even in many parts of the world today, there was a cost associated to that. You could lose your family. You might be ostracized from the community. You could be uh, persecuted. You could face torture. You could even get killed. A really good way to get killed first, second, and third century, is to say that you are a Christian. And so if that was the case, Christ, you believe that Jesus rose from the grave, but he didn't? What a waste of life. You know, when drug companies, when they are trying out a new drug to make sure that there is a real positive effect, what they do is they do a test. They have two groups of people. They have one group of people that actually receives this new medication, and they want to see if there's some positive benefit. But then they have another group of people, part of the test group, that receive something called the placebo. It looks just like the actual drug, but it has absolutely no effect. And so they do it. And the reason they do that is because the mind is pretty powerful. And some people think that just by taking this, I'm going to be made better or even made well. If Christ isn't risen from the grave, then Christianity is like a placebo. And all of you Christians who have taken this and kind of bought into it, really, there's no substantial basis. Uh, you took a dummy drug. It's all just existing in your mind. It's a figment of your imagination. If Christ isn't raised from the grave, then you know what? Like the church music? So it makes you feel a little more cheerful. You got some Christian friends, and they make you feel a little more hopeful. Your outlook on life is a little better because you're part of a church, 
and you're praying, and you've got some supposed Christian spirituality going, but bottom line, it's a figment of your imagination. And if Christ isn't raised from the dead, you know what? You are wasting your life. You ought to eat, drink, and be merry, because you are wasting your life if there's no resurrection from Jesus from the grave. Now, Jesus, he made it real clear. He gave these prophecies, these predictions, while he walked on the earth, of how he was going to die and that he would be raised. He did this on multiple occasions. Let me give you one. Found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. And Jesus, about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, which was a messianic title that he took upon himself, he says, will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Wow. That's, that's very exact, very specific. And he's telling his men, this is what's going to happen to me. So for Jesus, that kind of, there's only three things that could possibly be true. Jesus potentially could be a great deceiver. He could have been a liar. He could have said, well, this is what's going to happen. Of course, he knew it wouldn't, but he was kind of pretending like it was, and he was trying to convince others. Or it could be that Jesus, uh, maybe he was delusional. I mean, he thought these things were going to happen, but of course they weren't. That would put him like in the crazy category. You know that? Or if these things happen just the way he said, whole being handed over, scourged, crucified, and rise again on the third day, well, that would put him in the exclusive category of deity. And he indeed is who he says. He's the living God. Now, it's a fairly well-established fact that Jesus Christ was publicly executed in Judea for a century A.D. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea at that time. Jesus was crucified, and he was uh, then buried in a tomb, a tomb that actually belonged to a particular individual by the guy of the name of Joseph of Arimathea, uh, to authenticate that Jesus was dead, a Roman soldier who was taking part of the execution of both Jesus as well as a couple of the criminals, took a spear, lanced it through a rib into his heart, and there's a little sack, and out of that sack as he pierced his heart came blood and water, a medical indication that he was dead. And by the way, these guys are trained killers. They're good. They know when someone's dead, and they're just proving it. Even Pontius Pilate was given authentication by a Roman centurion that indeed Jesus is dead. They wrapped him up in a cloth, and that was about 100 pounds of spices. They buried him in a tomb. They, this is a freshly hewn tomb. They closed that tomb with a large rock, and then just to make sure, because there were these, like, rumors that this Messiah, Jesus, was going to come back from the grave, they put a Roman seal on there. And that Roman seal basically meant, like, if this isn't opened by anyone but an official of Rome, if it's tampered with maliciously, then the wrath of Rome is going to come down upon whoever did this. And to further make sure that no one would tamper with this grave and that Jesus' body, his dead body, would stay in there, they put elite Roman guards to guard it to make sure nothing is going to happen. 
So the question is, was Jesus really resurrected? That is the question. And how do we know that this is really true? Well, verse 20, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. When it talks about first fruits, it's the first of a crop. And so what the people of Israel would do is when they have a crop, the very first part of it, they'd actually give it to God. they present it to the temple. And as if to say, we know this came from you, and we thank you with our lives, and we give you the first part of this crop. It was also an indicator that a lot more was about to come. It was the first fruits. And when it says that Jesus is the first fruits, that he's been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, it's not the saying that he is the first person to rise from the dead. In fact, Jesus, on several occasions, three of the exact, raised someone from the dead. There's other accounts in the Old Testament of this actually happening, where God does this amazing miracle. But what it's indicating is that he was the first to be raised from the dead, never to die again. Those who had been resurrected in the past, like Lazarus, he died again. But Jesus was the first to be raised, never to die again. So, was Jesus really resurrected? That, that is the question. In fact, every single person has to answer that question. I would like this morning for you to look at the evidence. It's rather compelling. First, let's look at the fact that the tomb is empty. In 1990, archaeologists actually discovered the tomb of one of the leading persecutors, or perhaps we could say Jesus' chief persecutor, a guy by the name of Caiaphas. And they found where he was buried. But no one has ever found the body of Jesus. It's just nowhere to be found. It's really interesting. The first account of Jesus not being there, being resurrected in an empty tomb, actually comes from women that go to the grave on that first Sunday morning. And they go and they find that the tomb has been opened, the soldiers are gone, they look and the, and the body of Jesus isn't there. And it's interesting that the Bible records that it was women. Because women were of low status in a Jewish society at that time. But just to show how accurate things were written down, this is the way it happened. If you really wanted to make up a good story, you'd have a bunch of men that would go, and they were the ones that saw that indeed the tomb was empty. But no, just like it happened, they write that these women show up. But more importantly, Jesus' own opponents admitted the tomb was empty. In fact, they found themselves in a very perplexing situation. You have these Roman guards they literally are paralyzed in fright when this stone is moved away, not so that Jesus could come out, but to show that he wasn't there, that he already had been resurrected. Some of these elite guard go back to the chief priest, and they tell them, listen, this is what happened. That tomb is empty. And so you can even find this recorded in Matthew 28. The chief priests told them this. We're going to give you this large sum of money, and you say this. You were to say, his disciples came during the night, and stole him away while you were asleep. Okay, let's think about it. First of all, these are Roman elite guards. They are guarding a sealed tomb. A good way for them to not only lose their job, but to lose their life, would be to fall asleep on their job, right? And how many people do you think believed this story? About zero. 
I mean, if they were asleep, how would they know that the disciples came and took the body, right? Because they were sleeping, according to your story. So this is the situation. So what happened? Did the Romans, did they steal the body of Jesus? Well, they, they wanted him to stay dead, right? That's why they secured the tomb. That doesn't make sense. How about, I bet, the Jewish leadership, they took the body. Did they want any appearance of a resurrection? No, absolutely not. That's why they went through this whole rigmarole and made sure that they, the tomb was guarded. Well, that leaves us with the disciples. Ah, maybe the disciples, they took it. Let's, let's try that on for a side. Did the, the disciples come and steal the body of Jesus? I mean, think of these guys. They were so fearful. We only know of one of them that even shows up for the crucifixion of Jesus. They're either in the distance or they're out flat out hiding. In fact, that's where we find them. They're in the upper room. They're hiding. They're fearful. They're scared. They're mourning because their leader is dead. They saw it, heard about it, and they're like, we're next. We followed this guy. People even know that we're associated with him. Do you think that they would steal the body of Jesus? Like they even had the wherewithal to do it. Like they're going to overpower the guards? Probably not. Do you think they would steal the body of Jesus when Jesus told them not to steal? Or lie about it when he told them not to lie? Do you think that they were going to make up this fanciful story? Like we're all going to agree on this. Let's shake on it. That we're all going to make it up that he really rose from the grave and like, we'll get something going here on this? Does that make sense? Because that would require that they are going to live with a false hope and they were going to face persecution. Do you think that when they started facing persecution, they were like, okay, all right, all right, yeah, we kind of took things out of, uh, out of hand and made some things up. No, they're not in a position to do that. Really, the evidence best supports the conclusion that the tomb was empty because Jesus had risen. You see, if Jesus hadn't risen, it'd be really easy for both Romans and Jewish leaders to just say, here is the body, right? Or if they said, you guys went to the wrong tomb. Not too smart. You went to the wrong tomb. This is his tomb, and here he is. But the reality is, on Easter morning, the tomb was empty. Was Jesus really resurrected? That is the question. First, compelling evidence as you look at the empty tomb, but let me give you a second. The eyewitness accounts. Let me ask you, how many eyewitness accounts do you need to absolutely be convinced that Jesus rose from the grave? I want you to pick a number. Two? Three? Five? Okay, ten? Get your number. You got it? I want you to see how many eyewitness accounts there are to the resurrection. Look at just back up a few verses, verse 3 in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to Scriptures. Just like the Scripture said, that's how it happened. And look at this, verse 5. And he appeared to Cephas, another name for Peter, then to the twelve, referring to the group of traveling disciples. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Some have died, using that euphemism for dead. And he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, Paul writes, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me also. 
So for the next 40 days, Jesus makes dozens, dozens of physical appearances. People see him. He interacts with them. He eats with them. We have over 515 eyewitness accounts. So just for you to understand what we're talking about here, it's as if we gave each one of those witnesses 15 minutes. And we're going to bring them up here, and they were going to bear testimony under oath what they saw, what they experienced, what they touched, what they felt. And they, for 15 minutes, they're going to tell you. And after they're done, we're going to bring the next one up. Do you know how long we would be sitting here? Over six days. That's over 128 hours. No, you run into the bathroom or getting more bagels. Nope, you're sitting here, and we're going to do this six days straight. You would be overwhelmingly convinced because of the eyewitness testimonies. Now, you might be thinking, like, okay, maybe they were hallucinating. You know, people hallucinate every once in a while. You see something crazy in the news, like, here's a picture of Jesus and this burnt toast, you know, and it makes Christians look bad, and, and people believe it, and they just all flock and drive, and somebody makes some money on it. You know, maybe they were hallucinating. But interesting, hallucinations are like dreams. They're individual events. They're never shared between people. Furthermore, people that hallucinate, there's a yearning to want to see something. That was certainly not the case. In fact, there's a guy by the name of Dr. Gary A. Sibsey, licensed clinical psychologist. He researched two decades of all documentation relating to hallucinations, and he found there is not a single documented case of a group hallucination. And then, well, maybe it was this group thing, the kind of the idea that uh, people get together and they kind of subtly encourage one another to believe something that is not true. Well, Dr. Collins, president of the National Association of Psychologists, wrote this, quote, The circumstances would have been all wrong for this sort of thing to have occurred. He said, The disciples were not anticipating a resurrection. The idea of Jesus coming back from the dead would run totally contrary to all their Jewish cultural and religious beliefs. So they weren't primed for that sort of thing to have happened. Besides, Jesus ate with them. He talked back to them. He appeared at numerous times before all kinds of people with all kinds of different emotional makeups and in various settings, all of which runs contrary to this group think theory. I mean, think about it. Before Easter, the disciples, the apostles, what are they doing? They're like hiding out. They don't want to get beat up. They don't want to get killed. After the resurrection... After they see, like, they're totally different people. Peter, others, standing up, proclaiming what they saw, giving eyewitness accounts, bearing testimony. And these guys took some heat. They got persecuted. In fact, all that the Apostle John, who was sent into exile for a period of his life, all died a brutal death because of their testimony of what they saw, that Jesus was indeed alive. He was back from the grave. Now, I always find it interesting when people say, well, but were there any secular um, witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus? And by secular, they mean someone that doesn't believe. And that is that's a prevalent uh, that gets thrown around in universities. But it's very interesting and kind of suspect logic. I mean, for instance, like if we said... Um, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And you, you not only saw the assassination, you went to the visitation, and you were at the funeral. And so, if we ask you, is John F. Kennedy dead? Was he assassinated? 
and you saw all those things, and then you said, but, but I don't believe it happened, we'd go, something's wrong, right? Look where the facts lead. That would not be the right conclusion, and this is the evidence. And for the apostles, and for these 500 others that see this Jesus risen from the grave, you go and believe what the facts reveal, and the facts lead to the conclusion that Jesus was literally bodily resurrected. Let me give you another piece of compelling evidence, and that is the emergence of the church. Apart from the resurrection, there is no earthly reason why the church should exist. Where is Jesus crucified? Where do they kill him? Anybody know? Outside of Jerusalem, right? So 50 days later, after the event in which they killed Jesus, here is like Peter and the guys, and Peter gives a message, and his message is all about that Jesus is risen from the dead. If Jesus was dead, or they could produce the body, Romans or Jews, they would have created like, these guys are just a joke, and they would laugh at him, right? You guys are totally out of your mind because here's the body of Jesus, you're saying he's alive, he's dead, and we got his body. You're delusional. But you know what actually happened? All of Jerusalem, all of Judea knew of these events. And 3,000 people, after hearing why he died, he died for, you get paid a penalty for your sins, believed in Jesus, and in fact, to show they believed they were actually baptized, and every pool in Jerusalem was filled with these people who were bearing testimony that they were believing in a resurrected Jesus, because there's no body to be found. So you see it like when Peter's preaching, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Or again, that same message, Acts 2.32, he says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. We saw it. We're bearing testimony of what we saw. Peter, when he was again preaching in Caesarea this time before a Roman centurion, in Acts 10.39 and following, he said this, We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. He died, we, he rose again, we saw him, we ate with him, and he commissioned us, you tell the people that you believe in Christ, you have forgiveness of sins, and you can do so because he's resurrected. Or Paul in Acts 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 28, and following, he said this, And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all this as was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And that's exactly what happened. 
the people that saw Jesus proclaim that indeed he is alive. And that he died to pay the penalty for sins. And he can give you forgiveness of sins because he is resurrected and alive and people believe. And it started throughout the Roman Empire. And as then the Roman Empire started persecuting Christians, it started spreading like wildfire. It just took off. So friends, when you look at the compelling evidence, look closely at the fact that the church emerges. There is no other explanation besides that. Christ has risen from the grave. Let me give you another just staggering, compelling evidence. And that is the experience of those who believe even to this day. Do you know that for 2,000 years, people have come to place their faith in Jesus as the resurrected one? And they have borne great testimony of changes that Christ has made in their lives. And a sense of real relationship with the living God and peace and prayer and the aspect of worship. And their lives are literally changed and some are drastically transformed. And I should know because I'm one of them. I started hearing this gospel, this good news about Jesus back in high school. But not one who wanted to just kind of quickly jump on the bandwagon like, okay, that's a good idea. Uh -uh. I had to go to college. It was actually by the end of my freshman year, after doing quite a bit of study and research, I became convicted of two things. One, I am a significant sinner. Really missed it in terms of knowing God and following God. No mystery there. But second, that Jesus is indeed the resurrected Savior. And I placed my trust and faith in Him. You see, all of us have a God-shaped void in our lives. You and I, we're made in the image of God to know Him, to experience eternal relationship with Him. That is why you're here. That is why He made you so that you'd know Him. And to make that possible, God sent His Son to redeem His people from their sins so that you and I would know grace, mercy, redemption, the joy of being united with a living Savior. And so when you look at the experience of others who believe even to this day, it all bears testimony that Jesus is alive. Just as Jesus said, you know, he said, I'm going to be scourged, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be crucified, but I will rise again on the third day. Indeed, it has happened. And the implications of Jesus' resurrection are immense. One, it actually establishes his identity. Indeed, he is the one true living God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Holy Trinity, indeed, he's the eternal Son of God. And second, the resurrection validates that the Christian faith is indeed true. By Christ rising from the grave, it shows that God the Father is completely satisfied with Jesus' redemptive work. They really literally did pay the penalty for the sins of humanity. It shows that he conquered death, that he opens the doors of life, that real spiritual genuine life can be yours if you will trust him, that you will be in his presence. You will have a body like his that will be able to endure forever the splendors and joys. It will never break down of heaven. You know what else it tells us? It tells us that Jesus is worthy of our worship, that we can live forever with Christ. You see, our, term, our eternity depends on what you and I will do with the resurrected Christ. So let me just ask you, what's your verdict? Where are you at? Where do the facts take you? You know, every other supposed religious leader, Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, 
Guess what? They're dead, and we actually know where they're buried. But not so with Jesus. His tomb is empty. Jesus told the truth when he said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me lives even if he dies. The most successful attorney, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, is a guy by the name of Sir Lionel Lutku. Uh, he was successful in getting his 245th consecutive murder acquittal by January 1st, 1985. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II twice. So as a staggering legal mind, brilliant, he obviously knows what constitutes reliable, admissible, persuasive evidence. And so using his great legal mind, he put the resurrection of Jesus to the test. He examined all the facts that are out there. And through his expertise in law, he came to this conclusion as he was on his own spiritual journey. And he said this, quote, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. And so what he did, as he saw the evidence and saw what the evidence shows and indicated, he did what any logical individual would do. You put your faith in Jesus, the resurrected one. See, God raises the dead. The question is, when he does, where will you be? What will happen with you? You see, our lives and our eternity are determined by how we respond to the resurrected Christ. Friends, you can't inherit a faith in Jesus. It's not because, well, my grandma believes, and so that's going to kind of cover me. It's not like, well, i got to believe something. I'm here in Texas. A lot of people kind of religious. They say they're Christians. I think I'm going to go along with that. No, you must personally, individually believe in Christ. There's no group plan on this. You have to personally put your trust and faith in Jesus, the resurrected one. You see, your faith is in response to the truth, and your faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. What are you putting your faith in? For the Christian, they're putting their faith that Jesus is resurrected, and they have very good facts on which to do just that. In the spring of 1940, during World War II, at this point, Hitler's panzer divisions were just cleaning house in France. French troops were preparing um, to be completely annihilated. The British had over a quarter million of their young soldiers now pinned up on the Channel Port of Dunkirk, and then to top that off, there were about 100,000 other Allied troops, and they were just days away from being completely eliminated or made prisoners of war by the Germans. It was a completely difficult situation, especially for the British, because the Royal Navy only had the capacity, they thought, to rescue about 17,000, when in actuality there needed to be a rescue for over 350,000 men. In fact, the House of Commons was told to brace yourself for quote-unquote hard and heavy tidings. So on May 26, 1940, the British finally initiated Operation Dynamo. Now this was going to be their attempt to rescue all these 350,000 soldiers that were pinned up at the channel and at the port of Dunkirk. But the Royal Navy knew that they didn't have far enough ships, didn't have enough boats, 
There's no way they could make it happen. And so what they did is they made a plea for all British citizens in possession of a seaworthy vessel to lend their ships and their boats to the effort. And so while a despairing world watched as they thought they were going to see the end of World War II and the annihilation of all these Allied soldiers, there appeared on the English Channel an eclectic gathering and fleet of ships and boats, trawlers and tugs and fishing boats and lifeboats and sailboats and pleasure craft and a little island ferry and even the America's, America's Cup Challenger Endeavor, all being handled by civilians, all who were facing torpedoes, mines, bombs, and they made their way for nine days, rescuing all these Allied soldiers that were pinned up right there on the beach. The Royal Air Force taking on the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, trying to hold them at bay, all while this rescue was taking place for these nine days. But by the end of the nine days, when the evacuation was complete, the Allied commanders considered it a miracle. For by June 4th, 198,000 British and 140,000 French troops had been saved. And it is considered one of the most remarkable naval operations in history. I tell you this because the church, it's kind of like a ragtag armada. We who believe, we have been commissioned to tell this good news about a resurrected Messiah. Friends, we're far from perfect. We've got a lot of issues. We're flawed. The only thing perfect about us is our Savior. We believe, we bear testimony of what God has done in our life, and we simply bring the good news that Jesus is indeed resurrected. But friends, it's not a blind faith. It's not a faith like, just close your eyes and just kind of hope that Jesus is resurrected. Actually, it's a faith with your eyes wide open, with your mind fully engaged. And just like those men who are going to be rescued had to get into the boat, so must you. You must believe the gospel and believe in Christ, or you will certainly perish. So friends, you see, our lives and our eternity, they are determined by how we respond to the resurrected Christ. And Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage of Scripture. And what clear testimony you have given the world that indeed Jesus is risen from the dead and that life is found in his name. And Father, for people who have come here today who have never truly trusted in Christ, they might believe things about him, but they're not trusting in him. But they simply, now that you have their full attention, pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from self, I turn from sin, my own kind of concocted spirituality, and I trust and believe in Jesus, the resurrected one. I thank you that you've forgiven me of my sins, and I ask that you be Lord of my life. And thank you that you've given us such compelling evidence clearly that we can see. And Father, for the rest of us, maybe you just be overwhelmed by your goodness and your grace in our lives. 
May the power of the resurrection continue to fuel our life, and may this not only be a day of rejoicing, but would rejoice into the theme of our life, because Jesus is indeed risen from the grave. And so we pray in Jesus' name.